As you know, this has been an eight-week series in the book of Joshua, and today is lesson six, so after today we've got two more. Uh, so we'll finish the last Monday in March, just before Easter, uh, on this uh, series in Joshua. And uh, I've, hopefully you've been getting the uh, emails that I send, the lessons, uh, and also I thought it might be interesting for you, uh, if you've never been there, to see the website, we have a website, charlietaylorministries.com, and these lessons are posted on there as well as a recording, a podcast. So if you go to that website and you want to listen to today's message or any of the previous five messages, maybe, maybe you missed one or whatever, uh, you go to the website and right, you'll see the message uh, posted, Joshua 10, You'll see the hard copy, and then below it, you'll see this black line there. It's the podcast, and all you do is click on that little arrow, and you can, and you, if you're on a computer or your phone or whatever, you can listen to it. You have to hear me again. You act like that's a penalty. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> no Kramer, we cut that out. Uh, so, today we're in Joshua chapter 10, and there is a big miracle in today. It's probably the most doubted miracle in the whole Bible. There's, you know, a lot of miracles in the Bible, so that must be a really big one. Uh, and in the movie clip today, uh, Ralph Cramden will need a really big miracle to help his golf game get ready for the weekend, said, I'll never brag again, and then he went and did it. All right, today's lesson in uh, Joshua chapter 10 is this incredible uh, miracle, and Joshua asks the Lord, praise the Lord, give me more time, give me more daylight so we can win this battle decisively, so he asks for more time, and when I was putting this together, all I could think of is this concept of time. First thing I ask myself, what is time? Today we need more time. Everybody says, I don't have enough time. We say, time flies. Where did all the time go? So in our lives now today, we live in a fast-paced world with fast food, drive-through banks, instant mortgages. Uh, we're all looking for a faster internet, right? Uh, with fast-track packages when we order from Amazon. Uh, Con all the contracts you sign now say time is of the essence. We take courses in speed reading and on and on and on. Time is important. It's the one resource that we're definitely running out of, right? We're running out of time. So Joshua needed more time, so he prayed to the Lord to, to extend the time so their armies would have time to defeat all the Canaanites. So just a few things about time, you know, I looked up the definition, and it turns out nobody really knows what time is. It's incredible. The best, the only definition really I could come up with in, in the dictionary or elsewhere, because uh, it said a literal definition of time is elusive. It is the interval between events in the same physical location. Really? That didn't help me a bit. Uh, and so I kept looking, how is time regulated? 
Who decides exactly what time it is? You ever wonder about that? Today, it's measured by the U.S. Naval Observatory's master clock. It's an atomic clock. Did, did y'all know we hit? We are regulated by an atomic clock. Uh, without the atomic clock, there'd be no GPS, the navigation systems that everybody has on their phone and cars and elsewhere. Um, they all operate off this atomic clock, and they wouldn't work without it. And the Internet itself wouldn't work without it. It wouldn't be synchronized. They, could, they couldn't make it work. Uh, as you may know, all clocks have an oscillating machine in them, whether it's your watch or a clock. Uh, but this one, the atomic clock, measures the distance between the nucleus of an atom and its electrons. How about that? And they use the cesium atom. Y'all probably know what that is, right? And here's how they do it. This is how finely tuned it is. One second elapses during the occurrence of 9.2 billion cycles of the radiation produced by the transition in a cesium atom. Isn't that something? So, I mean, we've got it down, I mean, literally to a science. I mean, it is fine-tuned, the clocks today. Uh, but the global positioning uh, systems that we use are operated by the U.S. Air Force. Did you know the whole world uses the GPS system and it's all regulated and run by the United States Air Force? I mean, even, you know, Europe and everybody that, ever, that has a cell phone all over the world goes through the U.S. Air Force navigation system. And we make it available to everyone in the world since 1995 is when they started it. Just think about that. And that's really pretty cool because, I mean, we're kind of in control of the whole world in that sense. Uh, and since one thing we found out, though, that gravitational forces, you know, so this is, uh, this is operating off the satellites that are revolving around. And we know that, that uh, time varies according to gravitational force. And way up in space, it's different. So it's got a computer that adjust for the difference in time and space for the satellite. So the first thing that that rules out, uh, let's talk for a minute, first of all, about our concept of time. Uh, it was created by God on the fourth day, right? That, that's real, really what time is. It's a created thing, created by God. Our concept of time has to do with the creation. And so when God created the earth, he has it rotating, revolving on an axis. If you ran a pole through the north and south pole, it tilts at 23 degrees, and the earth turns around it once every 24 hours, one day. So our concept of a day. And, and we divide that day into 24 parts. You have hours, right? Well, also... The Earth is being rota is rotating around the sun in a complete rotation all the way around the sun, you can see, in 365.25 days. That's how long that takes. And so we measure years by our revolving around the uh, sun. 
and then the moon is revolving around the earth and that takes 30 days so you have your month so every every way that we think of time has to do with God's creation the original timepieces that go back 4,000 years ago to ancient Egypt are the sundials. And what they did, you know, they basically were measuring the sunlight, the, the time of the day is, was their concept of exact time. And they divided their sundials into 12 parts. And they did that because it's divisible by 2, 3, and 4. And they could say, you know, quarter past, half past, etc. Um, the first clock this kind of blew my mind. The first clock was invented in the 14th century A.D. Think about it. There was no such thing. But they got the idea of we can make a machine with gears and a uh, pendulum that measure a certain distance. And so they divided the clock into 24 parts. Uh, so you've got 12 hours typically in the day and 12 hours typically at night according to the sundial but now they're going to go with that same 24 periods and they're going to measure them with the pendulum and they were able to divide each one of those out each one of those 24 parts by 60 so you have 60 minutes that was the invention of minutes when they had when they had a 14th century clock then 200 years later, they finally tuned it. We need it a little uh, more precise. And so they put a second hand on clocks. And you come up with the, the actual clock that uh, we use in the 16th century. Do we have a picture of that? No, we don't have a picture of that, but you, you know what it is. <laughs> and so the second hand divides it into 60 again. So you have, in the 16th century, the invention of seconds. Okay. Uh, and so time w was originally, Isaac Newton said time, was, time is constant. It's always the same. It's unchanging everywhere. Makes sense, doesn't it? That's right, isn't it? No. <laughs> when Einstein came along in the 1920s, all of his experiments, he proved that the rate at which time passes depends on the relative motion between observers and the strength of a gravitational field. So gravity actually changes time. And they can look out in space and see time different in, in space than it is here. So Albert Einstein said that time varies. And so the next thing is, well, at least we know that where we are, it stays the same. I mean, the earth spins at a constant rate, right? Wrong! <laughs> the gravitational pull of the moon is slowing the earth's rotation just just tiny bit all the time, slowing the earth's rotation, so that a billion years ago, there were only 22, to 22 hours in a day. It was going faster, and in a billion years from now, it will be 26 hours in a, in, in a day. So it is actually changing. 
it is variable in that sense. So you see the, the uh, problems we got here in trying to define time. Augustine, the great Christian theologian, really the first and the, and the greatest of all theologians, uh, said it is very difficult to define time. People regret the past, fear the future, and live with awareness that a point in time, at a point in time, death will occur. He said time is a created thing along with the universe. When God created the universe, time came into being. Uh, so on the fourth day, as we said, you have the sun, the earth, the moon, the stars, and the planets all being created, and with it, God created time. And so that brings up a question. In what sense, you know, you know your Bible, and you know in chapter uh, 3 of your Bible, the original sin came into God's creation. So in what sense is time related to original sin? God had said, God had told them, I've given you one commandment. If you disobey, you will surely die and what did we found out after they disobeyed that that death he was saying there will be a progressive aging unto physical death which was not a reality before original sin so they would have had eternal life in perfection if they had not sinned but once they did God's uh, prediction that death would come became a reality so they began aging, and in time, they ran out of time, so to speak, and they would physically die. So it really became, time actually didn't even become a consideration before original sin. It wasn't a concept that Adam and Eve had until they started aging and were aware of the fact that there was going to be an end of their physical life. So time is an elusive thing. And so what I would say to people who doubt this miracle, I would say, you don't even know what time is. You're saying this couldn't happen? God couldn't make time longer or shorter? You don't even know what time is. So if you look at the text, uh, we know that now the Israelites have, last week they peacefully took the, the cities, the four, four city-states of the Gibeonites in chapter 9. Uh, they joined forces with them. They signed a treaty, and Gibeon, the Gibeonites became a part of Israel. And then after that, the Israelites went back to Gilgal. We got maps. There you can see back there the Dead Sea and the river. Jordan River on the right side up there, up, up north. Uh, they came in, they took Jericho, they went up and took Ai, and then they took Gibeon. And after they took Gibeon, they went back to Gilgal, which is their camp where all their wives and children and everybody are. Uh, and so at that time, what's going to happen is the kings of these other cities are going to say, okay, the Israelites went back to the river now they've joined forces with the Gibeonites, and that makes them a powerful foe. So we've, while they're down there, we'll attack Gibeon and take those major cities uh, to the central highlands before they come back. And so that's what they do. They unite 
and they attack Gibeon. So we read in chapter 10, Now it came about when Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had destroyed Jericho and its king, he had done to Ai, it happened then that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land. He feared, the king of Jerusalem and all the other kings, feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. He feared their joining up in an alliance. And so, therefore, in verse 3, it says, Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent word to the other kings of Hebron, Jarmuth, and Lachish to come together in a confederation to fight against the Jews. Come up to me and help me and let us attack Gibeon first. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the, son, with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, Eglon, gathered together and went up. They with all their armies and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. So they've got the Gibeonites overwhelmed there by numbers. They far outnumber them and they've surrounded the city and the Gibeonites are now in big trouble. So verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal saying, don't abandon us. Remember our treaty, a mutual defense treaty? Come help us quickly to save us or they'll... They're going to wipe us out. Hurry! And so it's Israel to the rescue, right? Uh, and they're about 25 miles away, which is a considerable distance to walk. Uh, and, but what Joshua is going to do when he gets that message, he is going to force, do a forced night march. So they're going to walk a considerable distance, 25 miles, uphill, through mountainous areas to get to Gibeon in order to attack them by surprise early the next morning. So he sees this opportunity. Now, in, when we looked at chapter 9, the previous chapter, we, I don't know if you're like me, but you thought the Gibeonites deceived Israel. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. What good could come from this? We're going to see that today. And by the providence of God, and what do we do? We see that providence every week, don't we? By the providence of God, instead of having to attack all these fortified cities, they all had walls with tremendous defenses. Now he doesn't have to attack those cities. They're all out in the open. If he can surprise attack them the next morning, he can catch them all out in the open and wipe them out at the same time. And he won't have to assault five different walled fortified cities and all the time that that would take. So to Joshua, this becomes a great opportunity, all set in motion by their friends, the Gibeonites, right? So it was the providence of God, and good did come from the deception of the Gibeonites. And so Joshua, verse 7, went up from Gilgal, 
he and all the people of war, all of his warriors, all of his army with him and with all the valiant warriors. And the Lord says to Joshua to reassure, to give them confidence, encouragement. God says to him, do not fear them. They may outnumber you. They may have better weapons. But I have given them into your hands. And not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, surprised by marching all night from Gilgal. I couldn't help but think about some of the Civil War uh, battles, you know, and Stonewall Jackson was the master at this kind of thing. He would take a small force and, and march all the way around the enemy and attack them at early light, and they, they didn't know what had hit them. Somebody they didn't even know anybody was back there. First thing they know, they're outflanked, they're surrounded, and what do they usually do? Run for the hills! They're everywhere! And that's exactly what happens here. He surprised attacked them from behind. They thought he was 25 miles away, and he shows up early that morning and attacks them. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord was with him and confounded them before Israel. They were confused. Who is this behind us? We're trapped. Everybody run. And he gave a great slaughter. He slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and then pursued them by the way of the ascent. So they ran away going downhill, if you saw those maps, trying to get away from them. And there was a great slaughter as they're chasing them and catching up to them pursuing them all the way to these places that you read there. And it came about as they fled before Israel while they were at the descent of beth Horon. So they're getting ready. They think they're just about gotten away from them. <laughs> and lo and behold, a tremendous hailstorm. Boy, we didn't see that coming. <laughs> so they get pounded by the hail. So God was with them. God did give them the battle. It seemed like a natural thing. Just a bad storm came in. But the Lord just slaughtered them with these great hailstones from heaven. And many died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So Joshua then says, okay. It's going to take a while, and the sun's about getting ready to go. I can see we're not going to have enough time, you know, to finish these guys off. Night's going to fall before we can get them all. And I don't want them to be able to reach their, their walled, fortified cities. We've got to get them while they're out here in the open. And so he prays to the Lord. Here, here's the most doubted miracle in the Bible that we were talking about. He prays to the Lord. In the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still in Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jack? That's an old uh, history book that they had. We don't have a copy of it. And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. That kind of explains, I think, what really happened. 
God just slowed the earth down long enough for him to have enough daylight to finish the slaughter. So God gave them uh, additional daylight. All right? Uh, so, again, the most doubted miracle in the Bible right there. Uh, people really struggle with it. They say, surely he means that they accomplished so much that it seemed like a longer day. Surely it means some kind of thing like that, you know. Uh, when, and when I read that, I thought, you know, in World War II, you know, when, when D-Day, they attacked, Erwin Rommel, the great general, said, the first 24 hours will be decisive. Our fate depends on the outcome of that first day. It will be the longest day. And so this really was literally the longest day ever because God extended it and gave them time. Some of the, I read all these different theologians and just some of the different, y'all notice this thing just keeps creeping down? <laughs> it's alive. So the traditional Biblical view, conservative biblical view, is that the earth slowed down its rotation, giving them more daylight. But that's, you know, that's pretty hard to believe, and scientists would say uh, that's absolutely impossible uh, for that to happen. It would violate all natural laws, the natural law of gravity, and et cetera, et cetera. And if the earth did slow down, it would be the end of all things that would cause all kinds of natural disasters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's the scientific view. Critics say it's the most striking example of the conflict between Scripture and science in the Bible. All right? So what do theologians typically do with this miracle? First thing, first possibility, they say, oh, this is poetic. It's just invoking metaphor to magnify the power of God that won the victory. The fact that the sun still stood still instead of the earth tends to show that it's figurative language. And, of course, that part's right. All the Bible uses what we call phenomenological language. In other words, what does it look like? And everybody, everybody here in this room uses that. What do we say? When does the sun set or when does the sun come up this morning? Who doesn't say that? And you know that the sun's not moving. The earth's moving, not the sun. But it appears to us that the sun's moving. So we use what we call phenomena. The phenomenon appears to be this way. That's the way we speak of it. Everybody does that. Everybody has always done that. And the Bible, the people in the Bible do that as well. So that's really not a, a problem. Uh, the second traditional way to explain this way is that God's glory, I like this one better, God's glory simply kept the light available until the fight was over. You know, like when he led them out of Egypt, what did they follow? The Shekinah glory. They were able to march at night because God's glory illuminated the way. So that sounds okay with me. I'd be willing to go along with that. But what I really believe in, and most conservative evangelical theologians believe in, is the literal interpretation. It really was a miracle. What does the Bible say about it itself? Genesis 18, verse 14 says, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
think about this. Anything too difficult? When you say, well, that could never happen. Ask yourself that question. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah said, God has made the creation by his great and awesome power and nothing is too difficult for him. I mean, if he made this awesome creation, can he not govern over it? Just think that God that made this existed before creation and he now exists outside of the creation and he himself is not governed by the natural laws of creation. And since they're his natural laws, could he not alter them or suspend them or intervene in them? I think so, obviously. So the literal view is that God delayed the earth's rotation, slowed it down, and God countered uh, the natural laws, uh, and he countered the perceived cataclysmic events that you would think would naturally happen. So God controlled it all, and we're told in the text that there was never a day like that before, and there's never been another day like this. This is a totally unique event. Isn't that what a miracle is? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to those people who would say, you can't change time, I would t just tell you about what I've told you before. Can't change time? You don't even know what time is. <laughs> tell me about the cesium atoms. Tell me about the gravitational pull in outer space and how it changes time. You can't... You don't even know what time is. You certainly can't say that time can't be changed because it has already been changed and is changing all the time. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus said, talking about the miraculous, what is impossible for man is possible with God. C.S. Lewis talking about this says, the mind which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind in process of relapsing into mere religion. And you know what mere religion is. It's just trying to keep a bunch of do's and don'ts, trying to live up to a standard. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is a personal relationship with the living God made possible through His Son, Jesus Christ. God personally is involved in your life, hears your prayers, responds to them, is involved, knows every hair of your head. So do you want just some mere crummy religion that doesn't even work? Or do you want a personal relationship with the living God is what it comes down to. So at the end of verse 13, uh, we're said that it, we're, we're, he's given that extra time in the day to win the battle. And he says in verse 14, there was no day like that before it or after it. It was completely unique. When the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal and Five kings, the bad guys, the Canaanite kings that had fought, who had fled away, they had hid themselves in the cave at Magadol. 
And it was told Joshua, those kings are hiding in this cave. Joshua says, well, don't stop to mess with them. Just roll a big stone up. You'll have them trapped. You can come back later and get them. And so they rolled the stone up there, and then they went after the rest of the Canaanite armies and attacked them from the rear. And he says, hurry, because we don't want to allow them time to enter those fortified cities. Don't let them get behind those walls. Get them out in the open. For the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And it came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying all the army, all the people in the army, with a great, very great slaughter until they were destroyed and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities, very few of them, that all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makedah in peace, and no one uttered a word against any of the sons. Nobody messed with them from that time on. And Joshua said, okay, now, open the mouth of the cave and bring out the five dummies. And they did so. And so these guys had been feared leaders, you know, awesome, vicious killers. So he brings them out and he says, okay, these are the guys you're scared of? And he says, get down on the ground. Makes them get down on the ground, put their heads on the ground, and tell his guys, now put your feet on their head. How powerful are they now? They're nothing in the hands of God. That's great, isn't it? All right. And so then he uh, takes those guys and hangs them. So all the leaders are wiped out and the armies are wiped out. And then there was a few extra cities. So the next day and the day after that, they attacked all these other cities that are listed here uh, between uh, verse 33 and verse 43. And the end of the text, we see verse 40, thus Joshua struck all the land, meaning the land of the hill country and the south of the hill country. So this is the southern campaign. Next week we're going to look at the northern campaign. He's going to go north up there by the Sea of Galilee and fight another major battle against the confederation of um, Canaanites up there. But... In today's battle, he wiped out all the southern armies and the central armies of the hill country and destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, that's the southern boundary, all the way up to Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. That's the emphasis of the chapter. It says it about five times. How were they able to do this? How were they able to get the extra time? And most of them got wiped out by the hailstones. So, I mean, God was directly involved in this battle, in this awesome, incredible miracle. So, in conclusion, Let's talk again about how this how time and how this whole idea of time and this story relates to us.
time before, what is time before original sin and what is time now as we relate to time? Why is time so important to us now? Uh, Like I said, in Genesis 1 and 2, we have a, a short version of the creation account. And we see that God's original creation was perfect and without sin. So they had eternal life at that point in time. So time was not even thought about. What is it even was not even a consideration. Time meant nothing. Time meant nothing to them before sin entered the world. Time had no significance. People weren't aging. They weren't aging. And they had no concept of death, no fear of death. Yet God told them if they disobeyed and went out on their own, did what they wanted to do, then they would surely die. Everything would change. And when they did that, suddenly time became all important. Time is the most important resource that we have today. It's the one thing that can't be replenished. You can always find more of everything else, but you can't get more time. And so from that time on, from the time of the sin on, time took on real meaning as they had a finite time to live, a determined time to live, and a finite time to accomplish whatever task they performed. So if you think in your own lives, you know, you have just so much time to make money, just so much time to get this or get that or do this or do that. You just have so much time in the day to accomplish the stuff on your calendar and of course the big one we have just so much time until we pass away time is all important to us and why because of sin because sin entered into the world and caused it to be meaningful without sin It has no meaning and no concept, no importance to us. So therefore, because our time is short here, it's how much more important for us to hasten to believe in the Lord, to hurry to get to Him. Because we want to enter that period in which we, in what we call eternity. Return to the Garden of Eden, to paradise, you might say. When Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom, then we will go back into that eternal state, and time will have no significance ever again. We won't have to worry about time. We won't age physically. We'll be with the Lord forever. It will be time Less, time less. And so we're told, Isaiah the prophet, talking about time, talking about it being short, worrying about it, he says, therefore seek the Lord while he may be found. You have time now to come to the Lord, to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
How long will God allow time in a fallen world to continue? We don't know. But we do know this, that we will never know how soon it will be too late. So come to the Lord now. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these stories that point out what time means to us and how you use it. And thank you, Lord, for the great miracles and your intervention throughout the Bible, these wonderful stories. And I do pray, Lord, that while there is time, that we would all come to you in humility, confessing our great need for a Savior and receive that Savior that you've sent to us to save us from our sins. And Lord, we don't know how soon it will be too late. So today, we come to you and thank you for forgiving us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yeah.